Our powerful Heavenly Father, in the silence of this moment, as uh, the lyrics of that ancient hymn echo in our memories, Lord, we praise you and thank you that Emmanuel, God with us, came and saved us from our sins. And Lord, thank you for blessing us with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And we thank you for this Christmas season, this Advent time, as we and Christians around the world recognize that we look back upon the first Advent, but yet, Lord, we anticipate the second Advent. And Lord, thank you for your word, especially for us in this country that we have it in our own heart language. We thank you for those who've gone before us to make that possible, that you have used uh, to make it uh, the fact that we have your word in our own language. We thank you for this day and thank you for blessing us with the opportunity to worship you, to gather together freely in this place. Thank you that we can own copies of your word. We thank you that you go with us. You never leave us nor forsake us. You have a plan and a purpose for our lives. And for each day that you give us, we pray that we would reflect upon those truths. We thank you for our children and uh, those who work in the children's ministries. We pray that all would grow in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ this day. We thank you, Lord, for the visitors that are with us today, these guests that have come, some from afar. We pray that they would see your blessings and that they would be engaged with your word also. And, Lord, we pray that from this text today we would have understanding that your Holy Spirit would teach us and that we would grow because of this time together. And, Lord, we thank you for our country, for the freedoms we do enjoy. We do pray for our president, others in leadership in these very adverse, uh, difficult times. We pray that we as believers would uh, be winsome and peacemakers and allow your spirit to have his way in our lives. We thank you for your word today. Thank you for blessing us with one another in this time together. Now may we be attentive to your text today, for it's in Jesus' powerful and precious name we pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Well, on this uh, Sunday of Advent, we are moving our time towards Christmas Day, our traditional celebration of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I was thinking back this week uh, to one of the premier uh, natural attractions, not only in North America, but probably around the world, is the Grand Canyon. I'm sure many, if not all of you, have been to the Grand Canyon, but it is certainly a road trip worth taking. When I was 12 years old, my parents packed us into the 1957 Plymouth Station Wagon. And by the way, it was not vintage at that time. That's how long ago it was. And uh, we made a trip from Denver to uh, the south rim of the Grand Canyon. And uh, Dad had packed all of our camping gear and the luggage rack on top, and I was given the third seat. Of course, in those days, the third seat in a station wagon was the one that faced backwards. So I got to see everything backwards from Denver to the South Rim and then back again. So I did prefer that because otherwise I'd have to sit with my three sisters in that. But my memories of uh, the visit to the Grand Canyon, uh, probably the foremost memory I have is I was 12 years old and I had purchased my first pair of sunglasses. And they were the wraparound kind, and I'm sure the race car drivers wore those. And I had those, and it made me look a little bit like an insect, which just confirmed my older sister's belief that, yes, I was just a giant insect. And uh, 
we got to the Grand Canyon, and it was nice and all of that. And uh, I remember my mother. My dad's name is Roy. He's a photographer. And she'd say, Roy, Roy, get back from the edge. Get back from the edge. And, you know, the best photographs are obviously hanging over the edge of a 1,000-foot precipice. And uh, then I heard her yelling at us, children, stay away from the edge. You may be fatherless today, but I'm not going to be childless. <laughs> and uh, so... Those are some of my memories. You know, I actually don't remember too much about the canyon or the Colorado River itself, uh, but I do remember those things. And uh, I was thinking this week about who was the first European, the first Anglo, if you will, or Latino to visit the Grand Canyon. You may not know this, but in September of 1540, there was a Spanish conquistador, and his name was Garcia Lopez de Cardenas, and he and his other conquistadors were the ones that stumbled upon the Grand Canyon. He was recorded as the first European to see the Grand Canyon. And it's difficult to imagine what they must have felt because they didn't know it was there. They didn't keep a journal or a record of their experiences, but we only know that they probably hurried back from that deep chasm, from the edge, as soon as they saw it gripped, as one writer said, with an awe that was almost painful to behold. Uh, when we went to the Grand Canyon, I used the term we visited it because I had seen it before. I had seen it in photographs, in artwork, and had had it described to me, so it wasn't completely new when I visited at age 12. Novelist Walker Percy, in commenting on Lopez's chance encounter on the Grand Canyon, uh, was he was not only the first European to see the canyon, he was la he, Percy writes that he was nearly the last to see it as it truly is, the last one to see it for himself. This is because the explorer, tired and thirsty after a 20-day march across the Colorado Plateau, stumbled upon the gorge with no expectations. He was just trudging along, Percy writes, and all of a sudden there it was. Uh, as a result, all of us after Lopez's view have had some sense of what we're going to see, don't we? The authentic Grand Canyon experience really eludes us because we have already been exposed, whether you've been there or not, to pictures, to the Internet, to experts, filmmakers, postcard photographers, textbook authors, and on and on. The way we rate our encounter is based in large part on well, how well it conforms to the expectations these experts create. Again, the novelist Percy puts it this way. If it looks just like the postcard, the sightseer is pleased. He might even say, why, it's just every bit as beautiful as the picture postcard. He feels he has not been cheated. But if it does not conform to his preconceived ideas about the canyon, if the colors happen to be somber that day, uh, and he will not be able to see it directly. He will be only conscious of the disparity between what is and what is supposed to be. And it's interesting that what is true of the Grand Canyon and our so-called experience of it is really true of the incarnation of the first advent. Over our lifetimes and beyond throughout history since Jesus first came to that stable in Bethlehem, uh, it has been depicted in artwork and in writings, and we have been exposed to it, whether we have believed in Jesus or not, probably for our whole lives, because we celebrate this holiday called Christmas. And so we have these preconceived ideas and these notions, usually 
They have been produced by cards and uh, by television specials and on and on. And so when we're confronted with the real thing, sometimes we don't know quite how to deal with it or we are not too impressed. When it comes to preaching the incarnation, the problem isn't over-familiarity. It is the measureless depths of the mystery. When you think of that, God becoming man, God exchanging his place in heaven, God the Son, and becoming a human being here on earth. The writer and the theologian J.I. Packer wrote in his great book, Knowing God, quoting him, the really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God, made man, and that he took humanity without loss of deity so that Jesus of Nazareth was as truly and fully divine as he was human. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic is the truth and as the truth of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And so we come to our passage today out of the book of Isaiah. If you have a copy of God's word, whether it's in paper or on your electronic device, turn to Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9. Of course, Isaiah was the great uh, missionary prophet of Israel. And if you're familiar with Old Testament prophecy, the prophet was only commanded to give out the very words of God. He could not ad lib as I do up here sometimes. And that's why I don't have the gift of prophecy because a prophet, according to Deuteronomy, had to say the very words of God and be supremely accurate in what God has revealed to him or he would suffer stoning and death by execution. Isaiah, as a prophet, as well as all the other Old Testament prophets, not only foretold the future, but they would tell forth the word of God. There was a dual ministry that the Old Testament prophets had. They would speak forth the word of God that had already been revealed, but they would also foretell the future. And a prophet was tested by how his prophecies came true. And uh, today we have so-called prophets in different arms of what is called Christendom, And yet, many times, they are proven to be false prophets. And if they lived in Old Testament Israel, they would not survive the day. But in prophecy, uh, in prophets, they would foretell something that was near, if they were foretelling the future, something that was going to occur, usually within that generation. And then they would give a far prophecy. And so there was a nearness to what they were saying. And Isaiah was no different. And in this passage in chapter 9, we are coming back to this uh, a survey, if you will, of God's redemptive purposes throughout Scripture. And as you remember, we started in Genesis chapter 3, where we talked about the original fall of Adam and Eve into sin and rebellion, and that God had promised there in chapter 3, 15, the seed that was going to set the stage for the first Christmas pageant, really. And then we looked at Genesis chapter 22 and about the son, the promised son, and the foreshadowing by Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifice that was supposed to be, that God commanded Abraham to carry out with his son. We looked at that last week. Isaiah chapter 7 foretells the birth, this virgin birth of this baby boy. And now in Isaiah chapter 9, we receive the story of promise as we start tracing our way and continue tracing our way of God's redemptive plan and purposes. And so Isaiah is being used by God to warn the nation of Israel and Judah about the impending doom and the discipline that is coming their way because of their rebellion against Yahweh God, against the God of Israel. And so Isaiah has a very uneven task in the sense that who would want to do this really? But Isaiah is faithful 
and he is uh, telling the people that what they need to know and what they need to hear. And he was writing 700 years before the first advent, before Jesus Christ was born in that stable in Bethlehem. Isaiah 7:14 tells us, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and we will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And so Israel is in great darkness. If you take your copy of God's word, we will start out in chapter 8, verse 22, and I'll read down through chapter 9, verse 7. If you'd stand as an act of worship for the reading of God's word, if you are able, and we will follow along as I read this. Isaiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. Then they will look upon the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. Verse 1, chapter 9. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea and the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders and the rod of the oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for fire. Verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage today. Thank you for the prophet Isaiah and for his faithfulness in the very difficult, adverse times. And Lord, we thank you for this time today. Pray we'd be attentive, that you'd give words to my mouth. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen and amen. You may be seated. We are going to see that in this passage in verses 6 through 7 is our focus today. Verses 6 through 7, we are going to be focusing on three things that Isaiah is revealing to us in this child, uh, this child that will be born in Bethlehem some 700 years hence. God's grace, God's glory, and God's greatness is all revealed in this child in this passage. Of course, this is a prophetic passage, Isaiah as in, the, in a great prophetic tradition of Old Testament prophets, includes some 22 prophecies in the book of Isaiah, which are listed on the back of your bulletin insert if you care to do more study. Uh, but we look at Isaiah, and he is looking forward uh, to this coming of this Messiah who is going to rescue the nation, the one that has been promised clear back from Genesis chapter 3. And now Isaiah is repeating this promise of God under the tutelage of God, under the very words of God. He is conveying to the people and he is addressing it and connecting it to their present and current situation. Now, one thing about Old Testament prophets, it is like us standing here and looking at the mountain ranges to the west of us and we can see the peaks. But what we can't see is we can't see the valley in between the peaks. And this is how the way Old Testament prophecy works. They see the first peak, and because their sight is foreshortened, it looks like the next peak is right there. 
Any of you who have hiked have known the despair you feel when you get to one peak and you think you're to your destination and there's a gigantic chasm or valley between you and your destination and there's more work to be done. But Isaiah, it's foreshortened for him on purpose because the church was not seen at this time. Remember, the church age in which we live right now was a mystery, and a mystery is not a spooky thing. A mystery is a previously unrevealed truth. And so Isaiah couldn't see the valley, and so he has foreshortened the prophecy under God's care and design. So it seems like the first advent and then Jesus Christ will come, the Messiah will come and set up his kingdom right away. And that's that second peak is this kingdom. But we are not yet in the kingdom, contrary to much popular teaching today. And so God's grace is personified in this child. Look again at verse 6. By the way, uh, what he is uh, talking about here and what he is warning the people of Israel about is the impending discipline of God's instrument, which is the nation of Assyria. Assyria to the east was the superpower of that time, and Tiglath-Pileser III was their king, and he was attacking, and he already was going to attack the northern part when he talks in verse 1 about Naphtali and Zebulon. Those are uh, tribal areas up north, north of Jerusalem, up in the Galilee region, uh, where actually Jesus later in Matthew begins his works of miracle and ministry in this place, which there has been great destruction and discipline and warfare because of God's hand working in the people of Israel. And uh, he talks about that. And later, the Galilee of the Gentiles. We know in Jesus' time, the Romans, the Gentiles were there. And so there always have been people who have occupied uh, those lands, or almost always. And so grace is personified in this child. In the first part of verse 6, again, look at it. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. This Messiah will be born as a child. This is a prophecy coming 700 years before the babe in the manger has been there. Isaiah 9, 6, the first part declares both the humanity, this child is born, and the deity, the son is given. Remember, he is called the son of God of the Lord Jesus Christ. The prophet is leaping ahead. Remember that foreshortened view of the mountain ranges? He's looking at the second range now in the kingdom that will be established. And, of course, we know now because of the New Testament revelation that it will be called the millennium. The millennium stands for 1,000 years. And we are, that is yet future to us. We, have not, we are not in the millennium yet. Again, contrary to much popular teaching that you may hear on social media or elsewhere. And so this is the kingdom age when the, when the Messiah will reign in righteousness and justice from David's throne in Jerusalem. He will actually be physically present in Jerusalem, ruling the earth during the millennium. God had promised David that his dynasty and his throne would be established forever in 2 Samuel seven sixteen, And this is literally fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 1, Zechariah 9, 9. One day who will reign from Jerusalem. And so this phrase is used six times in Revelation chapter 20 when you want to read about the establishment and the fulfillment of the millennial age, read Revelation chapter 20 towards the end of the Bible. And so this Messiah was born as a child. And in my Bible, in the New American Standard Bible, in verse 6, it says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And in English, that's a future tense. And actually, the Hebrew here 
The Hebrew tense is called a perfect tense, a Hebrew perfect tense. And what it means in Hebrew is that it is as good as done. It's not, only, it's not future in that sense like we think of future tense. It has already happened. In God's eyes, it is already established this is happening. And so that's what the tenses are, why tenses are important in Scripture. Emmanuel, God with us. Joseph M. Stoll, who uh, was a president of Dal- or Moody Bible Institute at one point, he said, the stunning point of Christmas is that God considered my needs and the worth of my relationship to him be of sufficient cause to go through the trauma of changing places with his place in heaven. The incarnation, that, that wonder that God has done this. So the Messiah will be born as a child. And then he is, uh, the son is given, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The second part of verse 6, where it says, it says the government of his... Uh, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. The Messiah will rule over God's people in all the world. And this is speaking again, looking forward at the millennial period of time. Micah 5.2 says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. Another prophet Zechariah, in chapter 14, verse 9 of that book, said, And the Lord will be king over all the earth in that day, and the Lord will be the only one in his name, the only one. The government will be on his shoulders. That is a figure of speech that harkens back to the time when uh, sovereigns, when kings had a kingly robe that would be over their shoulders. We still see that today where there are uh, uh, kings and queens in governments The government will be on his shoulders. That's the picture. All the responsibility, all the privilege, all the power will resign in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these passages out of the Old Testament dictate to us that the kingdom is not yet. It is not yet because God still has a plan in the future. We live in the church age. So who is going to be the one who undertakes these things? Who is this child? The prophet tells us, uh, in verse 6 and 7, it will be done by the Messiah, Emmanuel, this son of a virgin that he spoke about back in chapter 7, verse 14, and now speaks of things that are already done in a prophetic sense. You know, names are important. Each one of us has a name. It's important to have a name, isn't it? Not only for legal issues, but just to know what to call one another sometimes. Uh, but we pick a name out as a child, and we're stuck with it for a long time. I have a cousin who never liked his name, uh, he lives down in Southern California, and when he got of age, when he turned 18, he legally changed his first name because he didn't like his original given name. And I can never figure out which name to call him. You know, is it Jeff or is it Kevin? Kevin or Jeff? You know, I don't know. Uh, it's, I'm not clear on that. But names are important uh, because we are stuck with them or we have them for a long time. Uh, we have to live with them and live up to them. Names are important because we tend to kind of be formed a little bit, not so much perhaps in our culture, in our day and age, but certainly in biblical times, names were important. Once in a while, you run across a person who has multiple names, multiple names, such as Charles Philip Arthur George Windsor. Charles Philip Arthur George Windsor. That sounds odd until you discover it's Prince Charles of England. Uh, And you say that's a heavy load to lay upon a baby. Remember, he's royalty, and he needs a long name, I guess. So that's how that works. 
So God's greatness, <clears throat> excuse me, God's grace is personified that he is coming to take care of the issue. This is the hopeful part in this portion of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is saying, yes, the Assyrians are going to come. God's going to use them as a disciplining arm. They're going to carry you into captivity, the northern ten tribes. They're going to attack the southern two tribes, Benjamin and, or Judah and Benjamin, which are headquartered in Jerusalem, but they will fail at that. And later on, the Babylonians will come as God's instrument and carry them into captivity. But God's glory is manifested in this child. Look again at verse 6, the second part. Very familiar passage. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. You may be familiar with uh, the old evangelist, Billy Sunday. He was an evangelist at the first part of the 20th century and quite a showman. He is, had been a professional baseball player, and uh, so he was quite an evangelist uh, in his day and age. But he said about names, he said, there are 256 names in the Bible for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I suppose this was because he was infinitely beyond all that any one name could express. And I, I like that, that, that quote. But the first name, Wonderful Counselor, it speaks of wisdom here. Some uh, translations translate it extraordinary strategist because the whole picture is of a, a warrior coming to rescue his people, coming to rescue what is his. And uh, so that's the picture here. And Jesus Christ fulfills that more than anybody else. He unveils the secret about ourselves. He counsels us how to avoid the heartaches and problems that would otherwise beset us, showing the way of deliverance from the taint and pollution of sin. He will be the nation's wonderful, exceptional, distinguished. You can use a lot of different words there, counselor, and the people will gladly listen to him in this millennial age because he will be the authoritative one. He, in this kingdom, the people will be anxious to hear what the Messiah has to say, what he teaches them. Wonderful counselor. The second name is Mighty God, and that speaks of power, obviously. And it's unquestionably a divine title can only describe God himself because there is no one more powerful than God himself. Otherwise, God would not be God. Some have suggested that this simply means a godlike person or a hero in Isaiah's day. But Isaiah meant more than that, for he'd already spoken of the Messiah doing things that no other person was able to do. Uh, Isaiah understood that Messiah was to be God in the full sense of that term. The third term, the third name is everlasting father, and that speaks of security. Of course, perfect fathers provide the security and the protection that the, their children desperately need. This is not so much in the tr English translation of everlasting father as it is father of eternity, father of eternity. This is uh, a, surely a reference to the fact that Jesus Christ alone can give us eternal life. You know, the time we have really is borrowed time conveyed upon us by God himself. We do not control our time. It tells us that he numbers our days in Psalm 139. We have no control over the time we have or even when we were born in this time of time and space, never to be repeated exactly like this again. And so this is a reference to the fact that he alone can give eternal life and it originates with him and nobody else. As many as believe in him, to them he gave power to be sons of God, the Bible tells us. Many people are puzzled by this title because they're thinking of Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. 
And they think, how do we distinguish this? How can the son be a father? And several things need to be noted. Uh, First of all, the Messiah being the second person of the Trinity, in his essence is God. You know, the Trinity, uh, we have a difficulty understanding it, but the Bible teaches it, that God is one. There's three persons uh, in, in one essence called God in Scripture. He has all the attributes, including eternality. And since God is one, even though he exists in three persons, the Messiah is God. You know, it's been said that we as human beings have timepieces, whether they're on their wrist or on our phone. We have timepieces, but Jesus Christ himself owns the time. We just mark the time. Jesus Christ owns the time. Second, everlasting father is an idiom used to describe the Messiah's relationship to time, not his relationship to other members of the Trinity. He is said to be everlasting just as uh, God the Father is called the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. The Messiah will be a fatherly ruler, a perfect father, by the way. And third, uh, perhaps Isaiah had in mind the promise made to David in 2 Samuel seven sixteen about the foreverness, the eternality of his kingdom, which God promised would come through David's line. The Messiah, a descendant of, Sa- of David, will fulfill this promise for which the nation has been waiting. And then the fourth name, Prince of Peace. This is the assurance we have, the assurance. He states, my peace I give to you in John chapter 14, verse 27. The increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. There's a universal character of Messiah's reign and the fact that he is the one who will bring ultimate peace. He will maintain a time of millennial peace. Today, we look in our own country and see a lack of peace. We look around the world, a lack of peace. We long for peaceful lives where it's built into us. But ultimately, the only one who will bring ultimate peace is the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. And it will happen in the millennial period, in the millennial kingdom. It's a picture of God's character. In fact, Isaiah 9-6 is the first place in Isaiah's book where the word peace occurs. It'll occur 25 more times that Isaiah references it, even in the midst of his culture and his context of great despair in Israel at that time. And thirdly, God's greatness is disclosed in this child. Look at verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. He will have eternal rule and is characterized by peace, justice, and righteousness. Oh, how we long for peace, righteousness, and justice for those who have uh, power over us in that sense. But Jesus Christ will be the only one. His rule will have no end. It will go on forever and ever. And in the second part of verse 7, the Messiah, how is he going to accomplish this? Look at the end of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accompany the, uh, accomplish this. He will zealously accomplish these things. The zeal of the Lord of hosts refers to a decisive action on the part of God, especially in battle. As uh, in Isaiah, we see five examples that illustrate this. In fact, one of those words, it's also uh, translated in the English as fury, the same word here, this zeal of the Lord. But this will be accomplished by God himself. It doesn't depend on Israel. It doesn't depend on the church. It doesn't depend on anything but God's decisive action that he will accomplish this. 
And he will see that the kingdom comes without his, and without his sovereign intervention, there would be no kingdom for the nation Israel. And apparently Isaiah assumed that this messianic child, Jesus Christ, would establish his reign in one advent, and the child grew up, he'd rule in triumph. And remember, when Jesus started preaching his ministry, in fact, John the baptizer, the last in the model of Old Testament prophets, John the baptizer, his message was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that was the message Jesus Christ gave, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But then we notice a change when Israel rejected him, when the leadership of Israel attributed his miraculous works to Satan. There was a change and a shift, and uh, he was offering the kingdom of God, this millennial kingdom. It was an authentic offer of the kingdom of God would have been established right there, but they rejected him. They rejected God's plan for them. And so that's when the church age was developed, when Jesus Christ, in his earthly ministry, turned his attention to his disciples and prepared them for what we call the church age that began in Acts chapter 2. And so God himself will accomplish these things. And so we live in that beautiful valley between the peaks of the first advent and the second advent, anticipating the establishment of the millennial kingdom. Because if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be in it with Jesus Christ, and he will be reigning on earth. Now, I don't know how all of that works out, but we will be able to see what all goes on there. In the middle of spiritual darkness, Isaiah's prophecy revealed the light and eventual deliverance from Jesus' dominion. You know, we North Americans, we like things to happen quick, don't we? You know, that's why we wear our watches. In fact, I've told you before, my friend from Indonesia, Bernie, uh, Bertie Masi, he said, you Americans are the only ones who know you're hungry by looking at your wrist. And, uh, you know, we're so, the clock, the clock, get this done in this amount of time. But when you think of God's patience and his plan through the century, sometimes we realize that God is not in a big hurry. You know, he has got his timeline and his plan because he is the author of time. Again, J.I. Packer wrote that the Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, needing to be fed, needing to be changed, and taught to talk like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. And my hope here today is that we would recognize in this Christmas season as we get all the sanitized Christmas cards and all of that to recognize that Jesus Christ took our place and it started before time began for us. It started in that in that, 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 that manger in Bethlehem. And there was a purpose and plan that this babe in the manger would die on the cross for you and I. Philip Yancey writes about the humility of Jesus' entrance into this world. And it's not really characterized uh, in what we see of the powerful of the world. And it gets staggering, in fact, about that. There's prestige involved in being a world leader today. They're always in the news. But he writes in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, he said in London he was there visiting, and he was in a, a theater where the queen was. And he said he looked toward the auditorium's royal box where the queen and her family sat. And I caught a glimpse of the way rulers stride through the world with bodyguards and trumpet fanfare and a flourish of bright clothes and flashing jewelry. Queen Elizabeth II had recently visited the United States, he writes, 
and reporters delighted in spelling out the logistics involved in her trip. She had 4,000 pounds of luggage, including two outfits for every occasion, a mourning outfit in case somebody died along the way, 40, probably the guy having to carry all of that luggage. But, uh, and she 40 pints of plasma in case she had an emergency, white kid leather toilet seat covers. She brought along her own hairdresser, two valets, and a host of other attendants. A brief royal visit to a foreign country can easily cost $20 million. And that's, Yancey wrote this 20 years ago, by the way. In meek contrast, he goes on, God's visit to earth took place in an animal shelter with no attendants present and nowhere to lay the newborn king but a feed trough. Indeed, the event that divided history and even our calendars into two parts may have had more animal than human witnesses. A mule could have stepped on him. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for Isaiah again. Thank you for the blessing of having this account in our hands in the word of God that we can read. And Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to earth to save us from our sins, to take our place on the cross, to rise again, gaining the victory over sin and death, that we would have a future and a hope because of what you have done. And for anyone who can have this great blessing by believing in you for everlasting life, for it's in Jesus' powerful name we pray, amen and amen.